Welcome to the Upgraded Executive Podcast. We are bringing you experts from around the world so you can optimize your mind, body and soul. Our guest today is Dr. Joel Kahn, a medical doctor, a practicing cardiologist and a clinical professor of medicine at Wayne State University. Welcome, Dr. Joel Kahn, to the Upgraded Executive Podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. Well, thank you. Across the ocean, but we're one united world more and more as we're finding out for good and bad. But we'll focus on good today. Very good. Joel, could you give the audience a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I'm wearing a white coat, not because I'm a baker, but because I'm a physician and I specialize in heart disease. I'm a cardiologist. I grew up outside of Detroit, the Motor City, the Motown City. I still practice just outside of Detroit. In fact, my office I'm standing in is about three miles from my childhood home. I uh, went up to Ann Arbor to study medicine, moved to Dallas, Texas, moved to Kansas City. And long ago, 30 years ago, I uh, came out ready to practice, and my specialty was heart attacks. If you had one, I knew how to put a balloon in any artery in your body, three in the morning, three at night. And I did that for a long time with a lot of success, helped a lot of people, great adrenaline rush. You know, that's called angioplasty. That's called stenting. You have many fine practitioners of that art. And some of the original work was done in the UK for sure. Along the way, the other kind of path was a personal path where about 43 years ago, I stopped eating animal foods. It was actually partly religious. It wasn't a strong animal rights or health issue. It was a reaction to the food choices in my dormitory at the university, actually, and a great salad bar and nothing else. But that became important to me, actually, because although I began practice in 1990, there was a paper published three weeks after July 1990, that is called the Lifestyle Heart Trial. I read it not knowing what I was about to read, but it was a very high-tech science study of the ability to reverse blockage in arteries using diet, fitness, stress management ahead of its day. Although you could say we've known many of these fundamentals for a long time, but it was a well-done study. So I've had the pleasure of being kind of a high-tech guy all through this, using CAT scans and stress tests and echocardiograms and all, but also a really kind of high touch, always teaching my patients as soon as I realized there was a therapy, nutrition and fitness and sleep. And as time gone by, I've kind of shrunk the cath lab work and upped the preventive work based on a couple statements. I love the hashtag. I use it. I can't really claim I created it prevent not stent that's one of them and test not guess you know we take the precision of making a car much more seriously than the precision of analyzing our own bodies we don't have to be so imprecise but also i'll just say one last thing there was a famous event in 1955 in the united states when our president eisenhower had a massive heart attack and could well have died during his presidency he got excellent counseling from a Harvard professor, Paul Dudley White, a world traveler, been to England many times. I've seen pictures of him, lectured all over the world. But anyways, Dr. White announced to the world, heart attack after age 80 is an act of God. A heart attack before age 80 is a failure of the medical system. That was in 1955. And that vision has kind of been lost because we hear about people all the time, celebrities, sports athletes, or just regular people, school teachers, firemen, 
police officers, you know, moms and dads that have heart attacks bypass stents. And where were we 10 years before? Why didn't we see that coming and stop it? So that's what I do. I kind of call it upstream cardiology. I really want to teach. It could be by book, by a interview, by a clinic visit. And I do take care of a number of people in the UK and around the world by Zoom and Skype and phone. You know, why can't we get earlier in the process? So, you know, the perfect age to start thinking heart disease is probably 10 to 20 to 25 years old, although the audience doesn't really feel they're quite ready for that yet. <laughs> so why do you think cardiovascular disease has become such a big issue now? Because when I was doing some research around this, I always knew it, it was the largest killer. But I was staggered when the World Health Organization said that it kills 19.9 million people every year. And you think about what's going on with COVID-19, you know, cardiovascular disease is like far bigger problem. We've never really mounted, you know, a shock campaign like we are needing to do right now with COVID-19 to educate the public that, you know, it is. It's over 10 million people worldwide. Most of it relates to high blood pressure. That is the numbers. That, that is the single biggest slice of all that. Of course, smoking, diabetes, cholesterol. And that largely heart attack, strokes, bypass, stents, and premature heart deaths, scientifically we know they're about 80% preventable with simple measures, inexpensive measures, because nobody wants to go to the gym, nobody wants to change their diet. We have convinced much of the public to quit smoking. Fortunately, those numbers are down. They're not zero, but they're down with certain regulations and taxes and such and all. But you can even do better than that by some advanced further blood work that all executives should know about. I mean, I actually have kind of a, a viewpoint that it's almost irresponsible to be an executive and not know your cardiac health in detail because you're not only putting your life at risk and obviously your family sustenance and happiness at risk, you may be putting your very corporate health at risk. It may be very hard to replace you should you succumb to an illness or worse. So why has there been an increase? We kind of see that after World War II and economies picked up, a lot of soldiers came home smokers, free cigarettes and all. There was a real increase over time. We do know this disease is not brand new. We do CAT scans of mummies that are two to 3,000 years old. We can find calcified arteries as signs of atherosclerosis. There was a very unfortunate, maybe people know the story about Otzi the Iceman, who uh, in Europe fell in a crack in a glacier 5,000 years ago. And uh, his body was almost perfectly preserved and it was found a few decades ago. But he had atherosclerosis 5,000 years ago. They have actually figured out he had a genetic abnormality by taking some tissue and running gene testing. Pretty cool side story. But we're clearly seeing more. And, you know, we don't eat as well. We have, you know, processed food, fast food, excess salt, excess fats, excess sugars, excess chemicals. We're stressed. We can stay up 24 hours a day and we can work. You know, we can buy garbage food at every gas station and every uh, vending machine. And, you know, we do. We certainly know the importance of exercise, but we've built into so many jobs, sedentary lifestyle. I mean, just I'm at a standing desk as I talk to you, and I think you may be too. Yeah, because, uh, you know, that's not a treadmill and that's not a bicycle, but it's at least one step beyond being on your rear end most of the day. Some jobs require that, truck drivers, but anybody gets a chance to get up 
many times during the day. It's a small little vote for your health. So now that sort of smoking is on the decrease, is there something else that is like the biggest factor that is causing cardiovascular disease? If you say what's replaced it, it's probably been the general problem of increased weight, you know, rates of obesity. We talk about, you know, overweight and obesity. That's 75% of the general public. And it probably relates mainly to the changes in the food, you know, traditions. We actually have had, you know, interesting during this exact time of COVID-19, probably a few more home-cooked meals around the kitchen table due to many restaurants and uh, other places being closed. But except for this, you know, four, five, six weeks, you know, we've just outsourced our food. And it's, one, it's crazy rushed lives. It's loss of the skills of making a big pot of soup or chili or a homemade bread because you can control the sugar, the salt, what fats you want in it. You certainly can control if you're adding preservatives, chemicals, and such, and you have no control over that in most of the food industry. It's a very low margin profit industry. I owned as many as three restaurants in Detroit over the last five years, I'm down to one. That's challenging, but I've had an inside look at where you buy your product and where you source it. And my restaurants were plant-based restaurants and we sourced from different providers in most restaurants and not claiming it was perfect quality. It was much, much higher quality uh, without a doubt. But you know, you've really let the other person decide on your fat content, salt content, sugar content. Plus you add in the sedentary lifestyle and lots of chemicals. We do know that obesity is in part we call them EDC, endocrine disrupting chemicals. They're in the plastic bottles. They're in our air fresheners. They can be in our hand lotion, our facial creams, our shampoos, and they get in our skin. And they say, if you put something on your skin within about 25 seconds, much of it has been absorbed, a chemical. That is all outsourced. And maybe we'll take out of this confinement period a little more focus on you know, buying your own produce, maybe growing some in a garden and getting back to better food because, you know, it's that weight, blood sugar, insulin resistance, inflammation kind of four factors that is just driving atherosclerosis. I've seen quite a few of your interviews, Dr. Can. You know, you're on the Joe Rogan show, you've been on bulletproof radio and you've always struck me as somebody who's been a real advocate for being there you go <laughs> being a <laughs> vegan but you've never come across as pushy okay i think you know you're very respectful of what people want to consume and i think that the great thing for me that came out of some of the interviews that i've watched with you is that you know it's like predominantly plant-based has been some of your messaging. I think that's really quite a powerful statement because I think lots of people maybe would want to go vegan maybe a few days a week, but maybe not every single day because they love their meat. I think from your perspective, how much of an impact does being vegan have on your cardiovascular health? I have shown up at some, you know, what might be called hostile or alternative approaches to health, paleo conferences, but I'm more than happy to work with these people rather than work against them. Because generally there's a divide between processed, refined, 
factory made versus as natural as possible. And some of the other traditions or approaches to food health, like the Paleolithic diet, we're not going to be eating, you know, frozen pizzas and cheeseburgers in a yellow bag out the window of a fast food restaurant. I can unify with some of these people that we need to stop. Some people call it crap, calorie rich and processed food, but it's crap because of that excess salt, sugar, refined flours, chemicals, pesticides, hormones, and such. Uh, there's three reasons that people adopt a plant diet, a vegan diet. Some of us like the term plant diet because you can eat potato chips and soda pop and say, I'm vegan, I harm no animal, but we know, in fact, it's scientifically proven you've not done anything for your health. You may have actually harmed your health with that approach, an unhealthy vegan diet. But there's three reasons. One is the environment, and we can talk around this, but the general consensus, World Health, United Nations, the USDA in the United States and others, is that substituting some or most of your meals with plant-based choices is gentler on the environment. It just causes less greenhouse gas, Amazon forest destruction, and water pollution, air pollution. That's one reason people gravitate to it. And some famous people like James Cameron, producer of Titanic and other you know, major movies, that's his main motivation. Second one is animal rights. And you know, that's the tough one. People don't draw the line and say, you know, it's true that every meal you eat that's plant-based, not animal-based, Possibly an animal didn't suffer a, a life of confinement and cruelty and rather terrible circumstances. But most of those people are pretty much black and white. If you're committed to animal rights, you're probably not eating partly vegan, partly you know, meat-based. It's a tough one to straddle both sides on that one. The third one, which is what got me into it, other than just the fact it was bad food in the dormitory, but by the time I got in medical school, was health. And we know there are these traditions, and we can go back and forth. There's a lot of commonality, whether we're looking at Mediterranean diet or these longevity zones we call the blue zones, a wonderful, you know, kind of National Geographic's research project, not really academic, but still very good. There's a city in California called Loma Linda that has the Adventist Church and the Adventist Health Studies. These broad traditions that most pockets of longevity, health, avoidance of disease. They eat largely plant-based diets. They have beans and they have peas and they have lentils and fruits and vegetables. They may have a garden in the backyard. Simple, simple foods. It can be quite varied. I'll give you the quick example. You can look at the island in Japan called Okinawa, which is considered one of the blue zones of longevity. 10 times as many people living over age 100 in good health than the average in the United States is kind of the definition. And their diet is almost exclusively plants. They eat a lot of purple potatoes. Their diet is very rich in purple potatoes, a little different than mainland Japan and rice. They eat purple potatoes. They catch a few fish. They eat tofu, soybean, curd, you know, usually uh, I would always say organic because soybeans have been decimated by the uh, farming industry and Roundup and Monsanto. Anyways, and their diet is less than 10% calories from fat, and they have this great longevity. But you can find regions in Greece. There's an island called Icaros. It's also a blue zone pocket of longevity. 
and they have a much different calorie intake. Certainly the island of Crete, 40% of their calories come from fat. It's almost all extra virgin olive oil. They will have more meats in their diet in Sardinia, Icaros, Crete, than you'll find in Okinawa. And they also have great health. But the bottom line is there's no processed food or very little. There's you know, junk food and excess sugar, excess fat. So there is a range. It's perfectly possible to eat only plants every meal for the rest of your life. I made that choice 43 years ago, age 18, and I'm not dead yet, and I'm in pretty good shape. I'm on no prescription drugs from head to toe. Things usually feel pretty good, and they work pretty well. And I, I do check myself very carefully, but I rarely need to see a doctor, and I don't think I missed a day at work, knock on wood. You always want to be cautious with these statements you now in decades. But, you know, and it's a choice because, you know, by doing that, you've also honored the environment, you've honored the animals. It's a nice place to be. But I still welcome anybody still doing eggs and bacon and sausage and mutton in the breakfast. You know, try a, I have salad for breakfast many mornings, actually more and more during this Corona scare just to even get more antioxidants and brightly colored fruits and vegetables into my diet. But have a bowl of oatmeal get out your blender and learn how to make a smoothie. There's plenty of recipes out there, how to take some spinach and berries and ground flaxseed and some almond milk, learn a couple skills, learn how to take whole grain bread and put a little organic almond butter, peanut butter, and you know, start moving in that direction. And if you have serious heart disease, you probably wanna gallop a little faster in that direction because there is only one diet that's been shown to reverse pre-existing heart disease that would be the research of a famous engineer, Nathan Pritikin, a famous physician, Dr. Dean Ornish, who impacted me back in 1990, a Cleveland Clinic doctor, Dr. Esselstyn. But anyways, the only diet that can actually clean your arteries out slowly, progressively, is to eliminate all animal products. But for many of us, if we just would eliminate the majority of them, we still would greatly improve our odds of maintaining exceptional health, executive function, great brain function. That's the final thing to say. The beauty is this common diet. Your plate is brightly colored with fruits and vegetables and purple cabbage and peas and beans and lentils and whole grains. Whether you have a little piece of fish, little piece of chicken, little piece of lamb or not, it's the same diet that both lowers your risk of heart disease and lowers your risk of cancer, lowers your risk of diabetes type 2, lowers your risk of dementia, lowers your risk of allergic diseases like asthma. We had a nice new study in the last month on asthma and plant diets. And it's also better for the environment and it's better for the animals. So it's a real winner. And it's the same diet, I will just say, for prostate health. That's been studied. Prostate cancer goes down when you add more particularly tomatoes are great for your prostate. Brightly colored red fruits and vegetables are just exceptionally healthy. Pomegranates, red bell peppers, apples. The whole red family is a pretty good family except for red pop. Probably about three years ago, I made a decision that I was gonna cut back the amount of meat that I was eating. And probably most of my meals are probably 80 to 90% vegetable-based or solid-based. And I cut back the amount of meat I was eating by really focused on getting really good quality meat. So I was trying to eat more grass-fed, grass-finished meat. Is that a good strategy? I guess the point here is, does the quality of the meat you consume 
impact your cardiovascular status? I think clearly the answer is yes, quality and quantity. And there's a difference between a four ounce steak, a four ounce serving of chicken and, you know, filling your plate with no room for the broccoli and no room for the salad. But in terms of quality, quality matters all the way across the board. There's some interesting studies. If you can find wild game, and I don't, but I'm going to mention, you know, venison, bison, elk, if you're a hunter, and all the fat content and the health content of that tissue is far superior. What most people are eating, at least the United States, and I believe probably in the UK, is what it's called factory farm, chicken, turkey, lamb, meat from cows and such, where, you know, we're talking probably the worst of, the most efficient circumstance, but the worst for health, highest fat content, highest antibiotic content, highest hormone content, pesticides and all the rest. So yes, when you upgrade to grass fed, there's some data, there's more omega-3 for eating grass as opposed to grain in the tissue of uh, animals. And you probably, particularly if you can find an organic source, have saved yourself some pesticides. And, you know, if you can get hormone-free sources of animal products, but still reduce the quantity too. You know, what doesn't go away with grass-fed is there are certain reactions the body has to meat that's not dependent on factory farm or grass-fed. In general, actually the studies are only with factory farm. Eating meat can cause inflammation. The most extreme example is there actually is something, at least in the United States, that's been described for the past decade called a red meat allergy. And there's serious science. There are increasing number of people. This was identified first in the state of Virginia, but it's moving now to the Mississippi, and I'm sure it'll be across the United States. There's a tick. And if you get bit by the tick, it's called a lone star tick. There's a very, very strange cross-reaction with red meat. And the next hamburger you eat, you may be wheezing, and there's actually been people who have had to go to the emergency room for serious allergic response. And it's growing in frequency. That's unusual. It causes inflammation. Depending on the fat content, it may raise your cholesterol if there's particularly factory farm saturated fat. And then there's even some... Uh, other new chemicals, I don't want to make this too sciencey, but there's a molecule you can develop in the blood called TMAO, identified a decade ago at the Cleveland Clinic, that eating red meat produces. It's not good for your arteries, and even a newer one called NU5GC. We may actually have a subtle allergic reaction to meat. There's a chemical that almost every species on the planet has, except humans, NU5GC we have something called NU5AC, but it's in the meat of animals. And when you eat it, your body may create antibodies and it may affect your arteries. It's a whole new theory of clogging your arteries. So there's no way around it because it's just part of the tissue of at least red meat. So it's new science. That's why I say at least drop the quantity and up the quality. Spend a little more to eat less of those foods would be a good approach. What's your view around cholesterol and saturated fat? Very famous food researcher named Dr. Ansel Keys, K-E-Y-S, who was at in Minneapolis, Minnesota for his very long and esteemed career, hundreds of research publications, along with many very well-respected co-researchers worldwide. So everybody 
points the gun at Dr. Keyes, but his co-researchers, some of the world's most famous researchers in the world, and some are still alive. Uh, he passed away at age 100.5 about 20 years ago. He lived a good long life. And he visited in 1951 Naples, Italy, and the people he was interviewing said, we don't have heart attacks in Naples. We don't see heart attacks at the hospital. Whereas right then, Minneapolis, Minnesota was having a spike in heart attacks after World War II. He was intrigued. He was told, we think it's our diet because we do smoke and we're not the fittest people, but we eat a very clean diet. In fact, Dr. Keyes termed it the Mediterranean diet. He wrote three diet books about it with his wife that became huge bestsellers and introduced the whole concept of pattering your diet, patterning after a diet naturally low in meats, relatively high in fruits, vegetable, olive oil, nuts, seeds with some fish, add in some wine for the social engagement. And he got much credit for that. Then he went into the basic science labs to show whereas dietary cholesterol had not much effect on your blood cholesterol. In fact, you don't eat that much dietary cholesterol. Saturated fat from food can be a massive amount of your daily intake, and it did relate very strongly with your risk of developing heart disease, heart attack, dying early. A very famous set of experiments called the Seven Countries Study and such. That all was fine till 2007. He passed away. His co-researchers are heads of universities. Many of them now are in their 90s and very healthy. One of his co-researchers just had his 100th birthday. These guys are doing pretty well with the Mediterranean diet and eating very little meat or no meat. Jeremiah Stamlin just had his birthday. But at any rate, in 2007, a blogger, and you may know the name Gary Tobbs, in his book basically took on Dr. Keyes and basically made him into Satan, that he twisted the data for ego and uh, distorted what the American food industry and the American Heart Association started saying about reduce the saturated fat in your diet. And many, many other people picked up and basically parroted what the journalist Gary Tobbs said in 2007. A fascinating blog. It's basically like that game operator where everybody whispers in a children's ear, and by the end it comes out different. You can almost track the first comment on. So in 2010, a research article appeared questioning this whole saturated fat relationship to heart disease. It wasn't new data. It was called a meta-analysis. There was some bias and funding problems with the dairy industry amongst the authors. In the journal that published it in 2010, the lead author is named Patty Siri Torino, the senior author, Ronald Cross, it was so flawed that the journal published a major criticism of the article in the same edition as the article. You don't see that very often. Here's our science article. Here's why we think it should be chewed up and destroyed. I mean, usually a journal won't even publish it, but they publish both sides. Nonetheless, as soon as the word is out, who's going to pick up on that? Meat industry, dairy industry, you know, egg industry. And it just blasted around the world. And then in 2014, another journalist, Nina Teicholz, Nina Teicholz, I'm, I'm pronounce it, wrote a book, The Big Fat Lie, as a journalist trying to break this down. Oh my God, she made Dr. Ansel Keys again seem like Satan. The medical community doesn't accept this. The medical community still teaches reduce the saturated fat content from cheeses, from meats, from 
breads that are made with lard and butter to as low as possible. That's the language of some of them, as low as possible. Others give you a specific amount. And that's what's accepted. I actually got involved with, I've never met Dr. Keyes or any of his family members. But as I dug into this, I got quite offended by it and started writing blogs about Dr. Keyes and ended up publishing a 61-page white paper on the nonsense of this decimation of a leading academic's career by after he died. And his actually his Wikipedia used to read like he was Machiavelli. And now it reads really nice. We actually were able to turn the tide and somewhat resuscitate this guy's opinion. But it isn't really about him. It's about the science. But his science was very accurate. So I'll give you one last example. Just in the last three or four weeks, the most expensive cardiac research study ever was published called the Ischemia Study. 5,000 very sick heart patients around the world that normally would be selected for stents or bypass surgery. But these were very courageous patients and doctors. Half of them went on medication, diet, and fitness. Half of them went to the bypass and the stent. And the bottom line is at the end of three and a half years, there wasn't any difference in outcome. You probably can do as well with many heart patients, not rushing to surgery, not rushing to a stent, but good medication, good diet. What was the diet recommended by the world's leading scientists? A very low saturated fat diet. There's no controversy amongst you know, real uh, serious students of the field. So that means eating less red meat, eating less cheese, eating less butter, eating less croissants. Uh, and if you choose to eat none of them, but at least eat less. Is there such a thing as having healthy fats? Yes, there's a very small subset that would debate this particularly in the plant MD community, most people would look at avocados, nuts, olives, and extra virgin olive oil as long-term. Avocados, we can't say long-term tradition. Avocados are sort of a California thing, and many people love them. They've sort of migrated worldwide. There is some data. They're quite healthy, but you can't say it's part of the Mediterranean diet, for example. But when you talk about olives, nuts, and olive oil, there is strong tradition. They've been the component in Naples and in Sardinia and in Crete. And if you even look individually at research studies, the synthesis is certainly compared to butter and lard, they're an enormous advantage. Some would argue you want to absorb some of the nutrients in your food. You want to absorb vitamin D from mushrooms, and vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, and vitamin K, and vitamin E, and vitamin A that are contained within foods. Fat-soluble vitamins are absorbed better if there is some fat in the diet. So if you have a big, beautiful, colorful bowl of salad of every kind, and there is some olive oil sprinkled on it, extra virgin olive oil, you've probably upped your ability to incorporate that into your body. If you're dealing and struggling with serious weight issues, serious type 2 diabetes and weight issues, maybe very advanced heart disease, there is a sliver of data for sure that eliminating some of these fats may have a role. But that's not where most people are at. And just again to conclude, interestingly, in the last month, the Harvard School of Public Health published a massive study, about 130,000 men and women followed for nearly 30 years replacing butter and lard with extra virgin olive oil, heart disease rates went down and down. It wasn't a randomized trial, it was a nutritional observational study, but it's consistent with a lot of other literature. So, you know, what do we usually do is we get to a restaurant, there's a bread bowl, 
there's the probably poor quality olive oil bottle and we just consumed a thousand calories that's not exactly the profile but if you can find you know good greek italian spanish portuguese olive oil olives and nuts they can be a good part of a diet for sure should we therefore stay away from highly processed vegetable oils like canola oil and like highly processed sunflower oil they seem to be cropping up as being quite highly inflammatory and i think we all know that olive oil is really great for us if it's high quality but what about some of these i guess you know these sort of oils have been i guess touted as being very healthy for you are they really healthy or yeah there's two issues there one is again outsourcing your diet to restaurants and again having an inside view you know, you're buying a big tub of some sort of oil in a plastic container. You know, you can't really verify any quality about it. It's sitting exposed to light. It's probably degraded. Certainly that happens to olive oil. If it's not in a dark glass container protecting it from light, it can get oxidized, degraded, and lose much of its health promoting properties. So when you're outsourcing to restaurants, certainly fast food restaurants, you know, hands off, really low quality industrial oils, because it's always, you know, try and make a nickel on a dollar purchase, it's cost, cost, cost. I mean, in your own home buying, and I would again say oils, organic oils, they are usually healthier still than butter and lard. There are nice studies from Harvard School of Public Health and others, as you shift from saturated fat rich products like butter to vegetable oils, there's an improvement in heart health even you know some of the ones you mentioned there's a famous study from france about 25 years ago called the leon heart trial they took butter away and they put in canola enriched margarine there was a dramatic improvement in heart health now that was pre-monsanto pre-genetically modified and canola at least in the united states if you're going to buy it you buy organic because our friends bayer slash monsanto have change the food industry not for the better that's not conspiracy it's just the reality of it but you know there is that spectrum from maybe little oil no oil which for some people is a good place to be you can learn to steam and saute with vegetable stock but be quality about your fats in your diet just like you're going to be quality about the other things you've asked me about i am pretty up on the fasting science you know, the most predictable way in an animal to extend their life is actually to drop their calories either every day or intermittently. It's, studies have been done with primates, with rodents, with all kinds of even yeast. You can make a yeast live 10 times longer by feeding it less calories with less protein and less glucose, and the yeast will flourish in terms of their longevity. So that has led many scientists to explore it. And I am a fan my favorite researcher is a University of Southern California, Italian-born, Walter Longo, L-O-N-G-O, PhD. He has a phenomenal book two years ago called The Longevity Diet. It was a bestseller in Italian. It's a bestseller in English, The Longevity Diet. He's heavily, heavily funded for his research programs by the National Institutes of Health because he's high-level science at a basic level, at a clinical level. He has developed a fasting program five days in a row so you can get back to normalcy the other 25 days it's called the fasting mimicking diet you're eating a small amount of food every day 
but it mimics what he learned from the yeast and the rodents and such. It's very low in sugar and actually very low in protein. It's relatively high in plant-based fats like olives and nuts, and it induces a lot of reactions. We have internally in the human system, if you lower your calories or stop eating, you'll activate some protective mechanisms that end up being pretty health-promoting mechanisms, and we just never stop eating. So rather than stopping eating, which is an option for a day or for two days, he's developed a program of lowering the calories. At the end of five days, you'll have lost some weight. If you do blood work, inflammatory markers, cholesterol markers, your waistline is probably going to go down because it specifically helps you lose fat around the belly, the fasting mimicking diet by Dr. Longo. But if one doesn't want to do that and maybe wants to eat from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m., uh, eat in a 10-hour window, that's called time-restricted eating. Great approach to maintaining you know, your weight and your health. You know, the biggest enemy is just overabundance, no rules. So I'm all for some kind of fasting rule, whether it's every day, whether it's, you know, it's too difficult to try and do it every other day. There are people that do true intermittent fasting. That's not going to sell to the public. But, you know, there's been tens of thousands of people have done this five-day program. You can do it once a month, once every three months. And the health benefits, the scientific literature is full of, fascinating reports and soon we're going to see some fascinating reports about outcome in cancer patients. There's a little less focus right now. I've seen some data about cardiac health that's not yet published that's pretty fascinating too and positive. Dr. Khan, if I think you know a fair proportion of our audience I think will be plant-based, vegetarian, vegan, is there anything that people should consider in terms of supplementation if you are vegetarian or vegan? Yeah, there's a few different approaches. One is just to feel lucky punk, like Clint Eastwood said, and don't take any supplements. You might maintain an adequate level of vitamin D, of omega-3, of vitamin B12, of zinc, magnesium. You're probably going to do okay with magnesium. Second approach would be to follow kind of the minimal recommendation most plant doctors have, which is at least to supplement with vitamin B12 because plants don't produce it. Actually, animals don't produce it. Bacteria produce it. But we wash all the dirt off our plants and we don't really eat the dirt very much. So I'm not suggesting you eat dirt. You can take a little spray, a little tablet of B12, easy, cheap, and inexpensive. Some people would recommend routinely supplementing a little more broadly. There are vitamins out there from Australia, from the United States, that will have in one tablet a little vitamin D, a little B12, a little omega-3 from algae. There's even one, in the States at least, has a little iodine and a little zinc and a little selenium. It's a little broader, kind of a multivitamin specifically for vegans based on some data. And I favor that with my patients. The last and final approach is you can get blood tests. I mean, and certainly if you're going bare, if you're saying, I don't want to take any supplements, at some point, maybe after you've been on a plant diet for six to 12 months, do get your vitamin D blood level, get your zinc level, get your B12 level checked. You might be missing the boat. And I see it all the time in my patients, not just plant eaters. I see it in plenty of meat eaters. You know, serious nutritional deficiencies, probably vitamin D and omega-3 are the two most common. Vitamin B12 is a little unusual to see a serious B12 deficiency. I see it, but 
few times a year, but vitamin D I see a few times a week, uh, omega-3 a few times a week. And these are, you know, important nutrients. Eat your chia, eat your flax, eat your hemp hearts, eat some walnuts. Zinc you can find in sesame seeds and sunflower seeds, pumpkin seeds. These are great foods, you know, to add to a salad or a smoothie. Magnesium is pretty ubiquitous with all plant foods. Omega-3, and we mentioned the chia, the flax. So you don't want to miss out on this. But what other things can people do, I guess, other than diet and exercise to really reduce the risk of having cardiovascular disease? All right. Well, thank you. And I think that would be the big finish here, so nobody turn this off yet. You know, I do combine in my medical practice and in my writings, you know, kind of this lifestyle-intensive approach, but very high-tech, the test-not-guess approach. So I would urge if I can probably come up with three, and one of them is going to be very self-promotional, I apologize. You know, get better than average lab tests. Ask your primary care doc. Maybe challenging in the UK, maybe challenging in the States and around the world in Australia. You know, ask for a at least a cholesterol panel, of course, but maybe something called an advanced cholesterol panel. I just published a book last month about an unusual cholesterol called lipoprotein little a lipoprotein little a. It's a very inexpensive blood test. Very few primary care docs order it. It's the most common genetic cholesterol. 25 to 30% of the world is born with a cholesterol that doesn't show up on the routine panel, and it can cause you to have an early stroke, heart attack, or even a heart valve operation. Get it checked once in your life. Lipoprotein, we call it little a because it's lowercase a. It's very awkward, but it's something scientifically that's strongly researched. And the European Society of Cardiology, getting closer to your location, recommended in 2019, everybody should have it checked once as a consideration. Find out what your inflammation is, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, and get these vitamin levels done. So ask your doctor, can we do a few more blood tests than average? I'll tell you where you can find more information. Number two, there is a CT scan. There's a CAT scan. You're talking to a large, you know, an executive crowd. At least in the States, for $75 to $100 American, you can take 10 seconds, lie down, get a CAT scan of your heart, and find out the truth. At age 40, 45, 50, is this working well for me? Are my arteries clean, free of disease? Or am I on a path for potentially some tragic event in 10 years that I need to really change my lifestyle? It's called a coronary artery calcium scan. And at least in the States, it's still rarely ordered. It's been around for a couple of decades and it's very inexpensive, but it is critical to predict the next 10 years and intensify your lifestyle and your treatment. If you're abnormal and if you're normal, it relieves anxiety, but don't start eating ice cream and smoke cigars. That's not the idea. I, and this is where I mean promotional. I wrote a book about four years ago called Dead Execs Don't Get Bonuses. Provocative title, Execs. But it's on Amazon. It's been a good seller. It's a small book. It tells you step by step. It's really not a diet book. I've written diet books. But it's the technology as a cardiologist. How do you detect atherosclerosis early or detect that you don't have it? And if you have it early, what steps can you do in terms of lab work to go a little deeper? And then, of course, what can we do to really start to reverse it? Heart disease reversal. Type 2 diabetes reversal. Autoimmune disease reversal should be the language that medicine incorporates. We manage it. It's very lucrative for pharmaceutical companies to manage disease for the rest of your life. Write a script, write a script. 
But, you know, radical change in your lifestyle can make many of these diseases disappear, which is the most exciting thing that I do. And Dr. Khan, how can people get in touch with you? Sure. I have a central website. I'll just spell it out for simplicity, drjoelkahn.com, but that's D-R-J-O-E-L-K-A-H-N.com. Sure, it'll show up in your show notes, drjoelkahn.com. And I see people from all over the world by technology and have been able to order some of these studies on people all over the world. And it's very enjoyable. I mean, I'm 61. I've got a lot of years left to practice medicine because I enjoy it so much. And uh, making an impact and either reassuring or identifying disease that we really need to work on. So it's the good stuff. Awesome. Dr. Joel thank you very much for your time. Brilliant interview. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, your audience, I'm sure, will benefit from all the good work. Keep it up, you guys. Well, thank you. Appreciate right. it. I'd like to thank Dr. Joel Khan for his incredible insights. And please remember to like and subscribe.